you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Lisa Pruden. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community. Because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we take a look at long-term care in Canada. Back in January of this year, the Health Standards Organization released a draft of proposed changes to Canada's long-term care services guidelines. The draft opened an important discussion around senior care amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Seniors' issues are incredibly important community issues. If we're very lucky, we will all continue aging, and so we'll need services like long-term care. And many of our family members may need this service too. Do I want to live that long? I don't know. (laughs) I super do. Especially if, like, we have good things to look forward to as it happens. Oh, yeah. My grandma's in long-term care right now, and it doesn't seem fun. I think that's that's a big reason why thinking about these issues are so important, because when we look at how seniors are treated right now, it really doesn't look fun. And so none of us want to get old. But if we were doing better... For our senior community, I think the prospect of growing old would be more exciting, something to look forward to, something to be part of. Okay, I think I think I see where you're coming from there. I Am guess I that, selling you uh, on it? Yeah, yeah, you're starting to sell me on 115, it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is very true. You know, how we advocate for seniors today defines what our experience will be as we age. So we asked our correspondent, Emily Rendell Watson, to find out more about how Edmontonians are feeling about the proposed changes. Canada is in the process of revising the standards for its long-term care facilities, which have been particularly hard hit during the COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government launched its plan to draft new standards in March 2021, which included broad consultation. More than 16,000 responses were received. Now that input was compiled in a report that came out later that year in October. There were also consultation workbooks, town halls, and more. The Health Standards Organization, or HSO, released a draft in January of this year, and a public review followed, which wrapped up at the end of March. Here to break it down for us is Jim Silvius, a geriatrician and a senior medical director with Alberta Health Services. He is a member of the technical committee that was put in place to inform the new standards. He'll provide background and talk us through some of this process. Accreditation Canada is an organization that provides accreditation to long-term care homes and many other parts of our healthcare system, actually, in Canada. They developed guidelines in 2012, which were uh, standards for what long-term care sites would be expected to meet. There's a whole process that Accreditation Canada uses where they bring surveyors into the province and they uh, go to sites and they do a fairly in-depth 
review of a site against standards that exist. In 2012, the standards included 35 criteria. I think what we have identified over the last 10 years now is that the standards, while they were good at the time, have become outdated and that there are many, many more things that are important to people than were important necessarily or recognized as being important in 2012. And so the new standards, which have been a year in the making now, actually have 183 criteria as opposed to 35. What that says is that there are lots of areas of interest now and importance that were not included previously that we need to be thinking about. So there's substantially more criteria now than than there was previously. And can we go over some of the key recommendations and and what will you know change from what's currently in place so the new standard is actually divided into 10 sections the intent of the standards in the first place is to provide evidence-informed resident-centered care practices that value compassion respect dignity trust and a meaningful quality of life and so when you think about what the intent is here it really is to ensure that practices are in place that support quality of life and quality of care for residents in long-term care. The first is about governing a long-term care home's strategies, activities, and outcomes. The language has to be a bit generic because these are standards that apply across the entire country, so not Alberta-specific. The second area is around promoting resident-centered care with a compassionate team-based approach. It's very clear that people who live in long-term care home settings have multiple needs and different types of needs and therefore different members of a team may be required to address different issues that they may have. And so one of the important components of the standard is actually to focus on the right team members and the right types of team-based care being provided irrespective of the nature of the needs that an individual has. The third is around providing a welcoming and safe home-like environment. We know that uh, long-term care homes of the past tended to be very institutional. There has been a move over the last number of years in Alberta, particularly we have been moving away from the institutional model for a number of years now. And what the standards now focus on is providing uh, an environment that is more like a home for an individual than simply a place to, to lay your head and get your care. And I imagine that's something that's even more important given the issues that arose during the pandemic and where, where you know, people couldn't leave. Yeah, absolutely right. And so the pandemic, there is no question, has had an influence on the direction of the standards because we learned a lot of lessons during the standards that, that we need to ensure are incorporated into care as we think about quality care. The fourth section is about respecting residents' rights. Uh, we don't actually have a Bill of Rights for residents in Alberta. There was a healthcare Bill of Rights proposed a number of years ago that never was put into place. But there is an area now or a section within the standards which is about respecting residents' rights and how a, a facility will go about ensuring that residents' rights are being respected. The fifth one is about enabling a meaningful quality of life for residents. One of the other pieces of work that has happened in Alberta has been the facility-based continuing care review, which had a very significant focus on quality of life and quality of care. Within the standards, there is now also a focus on meaningful quality of life for residents, which I think is an important addition to what we have had in the past. 
And the next one is about delivering high-quality care based on the life experiences, needs, and preferences of residents. So it's not just about what a resident needs in terms of their care. It's also about what they would prefer in terms of their care. The seventh section is about enabling the delivery of high-quality care through safe and effective organizational practices. And again, what that's referring to is that the organization itself has in place policies and protocols and practices that are aimed at and consistent with supporting high-quality care for residents, irrespective of the types of needs they have. The eighth area is around coordinating care and integrated services. This is about the team, but it's also about the types of services and supports that a resident may need that don't necessarily exist within the, the building itself. So for example, if uh, there is a need for foot care and the, the site itself does not have ability to provide that routinely, if it's specialized, for example, that they actually have processes in place to ensure that that type of care is accessible to residents and can be provided. The ninth one is around enabling a healthy and competent workforce. One of the things that COVID, I think, has really very much uh, shone a light on is that we need individuals providing care who are skilled at providing the care that they are providing. And so when uh, we look at the standards, this is about how a site would go about ensuring both that the workforce that they have is appropriately skilled, but also that they are supported in doing their job so that they remain and their experience continues to be uh, something that can be provided within the site and the relationships that they develop with residents, which are critical actually, are able to be maintained because the same staff are working at the site and continue to do so. And the final set of standards is around promoting quality improvement. I think we need to understand and recognize across any healthcare setting that there is always room for improvement. And I realize that that is a very, very cliched phrase, but the reality is we can always do better. And so there are new ideas coming along and there are different ways of doing things that, uh, that are out there that we can incorporate into our own practices and provide better care. And so the standard is actually about how the site goes about building some of that in so that there is, in fact, uh, an approach to quality improvement and to bringing in new and proven ideas and evidence-based ideas. Now, there's also a, a new emphasis on diversity, equity, inclusion, and cultural safety as well, right? Yeah, correct. And so that's built in. It's not separately called out because it has been built in. When the uh, HSO were looking at putting together the technical committee, there are 32 members of us actually. We represent 11 provinces and territories. The membership was interviewed, believe it or not. They were interviewed, we were all interviewed, and we were selected to ensure that there was a balance of both regional and pan-Canadian representation but also that different perspectives were appropriately captured. So we have residents and family members, we have representatives from the long-term workforce, we have uh, representatives from leadership, policymakers, and researchers, and we have some uh, membership from more vulnerable populations. There has been some criticism in terms of the document's vague language. When we look at enforcing these standards when they are complete, what would that look like and, and how would that happen? The standards themselves are higher level. The criteria underneath provide some of the detail and there is work underway on the criteria. The 
uh, feedback that we have had, which may have identified that a particular criterion was not overly clear, will be looked at and incorporated in terms of the language of the ultimate uh, or the end result of the criteria for the criteria. I think it's important to appreciate as well that the way the criteria were written is actually intended that they would be measurable in some way. And some of the discussions that we had, in fact, as we saw drafts of the criteria over time have been, well, this is nice, but how are you actually going to be able to demonstrate that this is being met or that this is being done? Because what will happen with the standard at the end of the day is that Accreditation Canada will adopt the standard as the go-forward standard against which they will um, accredit, so they will survey against. They will actually be going out to sites with the criteria and saying, uh, this criterion, you know, demonstrate to me how you are meeting this criterion or that criterion or the other criterions. The public review on the draft guidelines just wrapped up at the end of March. Where do we go from here and what's happening next? And, and when might we see these new criteria actually implemented? Uh, what's happening now is that there is a lot of work underway. Different members of the technical committee were asked to identify specific areas of expertise where they could assist with revamping or revising some of the, um, the criteria and the standards on which there was comment. And so that work is underway at the present time. That will continue and there will be refinements made to the standards and the criteria through August. The standards themselves will be published somewhere between September and December of 2022. Then what will happen is that Accreditation Canada will identify the time frame after which sites will be required to meet the new standards in order to be accredited. Jim told me that while the intent of the work is to identify evidence-based practices that should be in place, this is also happening in tandem with other influences like Alberta's new continuing care legislation and the facility-based continuing care review. So here in Alberta and Edmonton, those in combination with the new standards will hopefully help to move the needle. Now, I also spoke with Eileen Mardras, who lives in an apartment building for seniors in downtown Edmonton. It's independent living and is partially subsidized by the government, just enough to make it affordable housing. Other than management providing a bit of service for maintenance, she's self-sufficient. So while she doesn't currently need long-term care, she's aware that she or those she loves may very well need that in the future. Both myself and most of my neighbors are aware. We've had some of our neighbors that have had to move into it. It's something we all really want to avoid. I mean, it's kind of interesting the number of things that people do to keep their brains active just deliberately to uh, try to keep themselves more independent. We, we look at the other kinds of in-home services that are available. And I know I firmly believe that some of the money that's going to long-term care should be put into aging in place um, it's hard to understand the uh, changes that are happening and that long-term care might become more personal and more like home because that's not how we usually see it. Most of us want to stay in, in a home, you know, our home. That's certainly understandable. And I think that's something that throughout the pandemic has been really tough with people confined to not be able to leave. And, you know, if it doesn't feel like home, that's, that's really hard, not just for them, but also family members who, who want to see them. Now, when you look at the changes and what's being recommended, mm -hmm. what, what do you think about them and, and what we might see for good or, or bad? Well, I think that 
there's a lot of community engagement that's happened, uh, very impressively so, and that, that's a good sign. I took a look at some of the old standards. I took a look at some of the Alberta standards for licensing for long-term care. And the difference in terminology is noticeable because they really are now setting the standards to be more about the individual and the individual's involvement. Whereas before we were, seems like we were aiming for quality care, but it was in a give it to them kind of thing rather than involving everybody. Uh, and I think that will make a, a huge difference. I think the standards, the guidelines though cover, they're not specific enough in some places and then in another way they cover too much. I was overwhelmed trying to read through all of it. And I found a, a variance in the language, some of which would give you a handle on how to fulfill that standard or meet that standard. And some of it was just, uh, well, we should encourage this or they should ensure this without any idea of, of how it would be implemented. So I felt that if, um, if the provinces and territories try to come up with compliance standards, that there's a good values in the, the new recommendations and that would really drastically improve long-term care but it's going to be expensive and it's really time intensive. I don't think we have the personnel right now available to do it, you know, both numbers and trained. Uh, so I could see some real issues in making it happen. When you say some areas that you think could be more specific and then some that are far too specific, can you give me some examples? Like what comes to mind? It's just, it's a lot. And I'm wondering, it's, it's almost like an umbrella, one size fits all, whereas when we talk about long-term care, there's so many different ways it could be provided. I'm not completely convinced that one size fits all in terms of our standards is the way to go. And reading through dozens and dozens and dozens of the, the criteria and looking at the, the, how it compare, they compared to the value, it was confusing. One of the things that comes to mind that, that I noticed is that there's a criteria for there to be a care plan that involves the individual. It's half specific, but it doesn't actually require that they get a copy of it. <laughs> and there's a few other things like that where, you know, yes, we should do this, but no mandate to document it. Some of the criteria start off with, well, they should ensure, and some of it say they should perform, and some of it say they should document, but it varies quite considerably. And sometimes I could read through a criteria and figure out what it is they want me to provide. And other times I'm, it feels like I'm off in la-la land and it's up to the good values of the provider. And that might be deliberate, but it was very... Uh, disconcerting at times. Do you have friends who are in long-term care right now? I do, actually. Uh, one of my closest friends has been in long-term care for a long time, and she has a, a good friend that I know who also is. My, my friend has uh, multiple disabilities, and I know that they really address some of them, and other times I feel like others get lost, but it would take a, it takes a lot of time. It takes a um, a lot of resources to provide for people who have complex needs. And while that's acknowledged in the recommendations, I don't know that it actually provides direction in far as the what could be done to meet those. There were some things missing there. 
even like the, the care plan, I, I'm using that because it, it just is something that recently happened with my friend. There was some change in how they were doing it. And they just, they did it with her, but they didn't tell her about the change. Some of the transparency, which the values for the that are recommended in the new guide, the tra- transparency is highly recommended, but how that's interpreted can vary. And so the same thing with things like informed consent. Sometimes we, we jump into a situation and then we want consent for something that somebody didn't even know was going to happen. So there's a lot that has to be worked through in order to make these recommendations viable and enforceable in any way. You know, when you think about these recommendations overall, they are very thorough. They're certainly a lot more thorough than the, the last set of standards. Yes. Do you overall think that we're headed in the right direction in terms of improving things? I think that we're headed in the only direction that would improve things, as long as we are a bit flexible, because some of the things that some of the new kinds of programs that have been uh, experimented with are looking like they could be very good, but we don't want to eliminate something that's outside of our specific set of services that we have. I mean, I think you can keep the same values and the same need for individualization and, and provide it in, in different ways. We're going to have to really, really believe that people have the right to that self-determination. Um, I know with people with disabilities, that was a big fight. You know, getting families to listen that it isn't just their decision. Even if the person can't make the, this decision themselves that they still have the right to input. And it's interesting that is in the standards saying that every individual should be involved in their planning. And if they don't, they can't make informed decisions, they still have to be included in some way. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see if, um, if the provinces and territories follow up on that one. And right now, if I was needing long-term care, I'm not sure how where I would start. I mean, there's directories that list housing, but you don't know what's working and what's good and what's actually long-term care and if you're going to get your needs met. So in addition to what's in those recommendations, we need a, an additional one that includes that kind of a, a guideline, that there be access to the information about it so that you can make decisions, inform decisions. That was Eileen Mardris, a senior living in Edmonton. Next, we'll hear from Nigel Kell, the executive director of the Edmonton Senior Centre. The Senior Centre offers a range of services, from foot care to exercise and art classes, and has been operating virtually since March 2020. One of the reasons for that is that although some centres have opened up, we rent space inside a long-term care facility. They're still subject to provincial health orders, which make... Uh, association by their residents, who are also members of our organization, impossible because they can't congregate together. Generally, though, we employ a a social worker in the position of outreach manager, and it's that position that liaises with the long-term care facilities deals with issues arising that uh, residents may have and advocates for them, particularly for those residents who don't have family support. Either they simply don't have any family locally, they don't have any family at all, or they're part of a fractured family relationship. 
you're familiar with the recommendations given the work that, that you do with seniors. So what are your thoughts about uh, what's being proposed? My concern would be as a result of changes that are taking place locally within our city, my organization may very well find itself unable to deploy an outreach worker directly. We wouldn't be funded for that anymore. The model is still being developed. And the recommendations for those seniors who, as I say, don't have access to family and who rely on outreach workers uh, for support and advocacy, uh, if the model for funding advocacy is changing, it seems as though one of the elements of the recommendation where they're looking for residents of the facilities to have an advocate, if that advocate is an outreach worker because they don't have family support and the model is changing, we're going to find uh, that that's going to impact our ability to act on behalf of the senior. And also, there's always an element to these recommendations which requires, you know, essentially it's the enforcement angle. I'm not so sure that there is the ability or the money to regularly inspect these institutions. One of the things that came out of COVID the world over, not just in Canada, was that a lot of these premises had not been inspected for a long time. And government is going to have to commit to support this enforcement angle because a lot of these centers, which aren't funded by provincial healthcare, they operate on a for-profit basis. And at some point, the demands of owners or shareholders are going to come into conflict with the costs of implementing all these recommendations. And that's the time when uh, organizations can decide to trim back, take shortcuts. And that's why it's essential that there be an enforcement angle. Now, we're not an enforcement agency, but having an outreach worker attending these facilities and being aware of what actual requirements are and spotting shortfalls in those is very important. But if we don't have our outreach worker anymore, which it looks as though we're not going to, then as an organization, we won't be able to play our role in this set of recommendations. Am I hearing that you want to see kind of the different levels of government, whether that's municipal, provincial, federal, work more closely together in terms of how all these pieces are actually going to work together? Well, yeah, because enforcement requires funding. and we need to know that the money is going to be there to effectively uh, regulate and, where necessary, enforce the regulations. And what we're seeing throughout government is that there is a tightening of the budgets because of COVID and prior to COVID, the recession, uh, and now, of course, uh, a war in Ukraine, which is upsetting uh, the world economic order because everything's intertwined. So how much money is going to be available? Because you can put a set of proposals down, but unless government stumps up the money, and a lot of this will be at the provincial level, the effectiveness of the recommendations could very well be impacted. 
Okay. No, that makes sense. In terms of the other recommendations, are there are there any other ones that really stand out to you as, as something you're either concerned about or, you know, really pleased to to see those changes? I imagine there if the recommendations are implemented well, there's a lot that a lot of folks will be pleased to see, but I know it's not as simple as that and often needs more scrutiny. I would be concerned that uh, there has been uh, industry assessment, an independent industry assessment of the level of changes that are necessary throughout the sector, the physical changes and um, upgrades that are necessary. Because a lot of the smaller homes, not the large national chains, but independent small homes, may very well not be able to afford the changes that are necessary. So what happens to them? Also, the cost of, we talk about staffing. Staffing became a big issue. People were getting burned out. Also, it became apparent that a lot of the private care homes were not paying what one could describe as a living wage. To expect a increase in people's skills and abilities means that the for-profit organizations are going to have to accept less profit. And that's always a challenge because unless government produces the money to somehow subsidize the cost of increasing the the wages to recruit better trained staff and also recruiting enough staff so that in the event of a pandemic, are there enough staff to ensure that the existing staff don't get burned out? And the increased costs of changes to equipment, changes to layout, and changes to staff and the requirement to have enough staff, even things like PPE. Now, these are all things which cost money. And when you're uh, you know, a for-profit organization and you're not getting properly supported by government, if government pitches its uh, any support at the lower level, then there is a feasible situation where a number of these homes may very well go under financially because it will be impossible to meet the requirements of any amended regulations if there isn't enough support. There's been a fair amount of consultation done on these recommendations. Obviously, you work closely with seniors and you know other folks in this space. How accessible has all that information been? And do you think there's been enough done to inform seniors about the changes in terms of what is being done and and when they're coming? I would say that there was a bit of a shortfall on the information side. If the organizations aren't operating normally, i.e. people aren't congregating in a normal manner, then the ability to circulate material is limited and not everybody has access to the internet. I mean, there was no choice about doing it at this time, but because of the effects of the pandemic, it meant that a lot of seniors were still isolating Uh, So do I think they were aware of these changes? Were they consulted to the maximum? Probably not, because we weren't on a regular basis. When you think about like this set of recommendations and reaching people who are, you know, maybe not seniors now, but obviously we're all we're, we're all working towards that. Like, what do you think to keep in mind when you think about why all of this matters? Uh, I think it's an uphill battle convincing younger people that They need to take a a serious interest in this now because by the time they do realize that they're actually on the cusp of 
being eligible to go move into a long-term care facility or having to consider moving into one, well, it's too late by then for them. As you heard earlier in the episode, the next steps will be to make revisions based on feedback. It's expected that the standards will be published between September and December of this year, 2022. Ultimately, it's really about that culture shift from the mechanics of providing care to making sure that people's quality of life is high during their last years of life. Thanks so much to Emily Rendell Watson for bringing us this story. And thanks to Jim Silvius, Eileen Mardras, and Nigel Kell for sharing their perspectives. Friends, you know we love putting links in our show notes, and this episode will have a bunch. We'll have a link to the draft of the proposed changes, to information about the process, and a few news articles as well. And we'll also have links to ECF's well-endowed web show and the latest on our blog. And while you're clicking about, don't forget to check out our upcoming granting deadlines to see if you could be eligible for some of our funding opportunities. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with your friends. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures from the show. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Lisa Pruden. And Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at BECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well-Endowed.